0: find, even though our experience in the past year has been different, we can keep finding parallels throughout history, and I think that's why historical fiction remains such a popular genre.
1: Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel McMillan, author of the historical novel The London Restoration, and her upcoming historical novel The Mozart Code.
0: I am seeing these characters so deeply that in my mind they're fully formed. So then the next part of the process is trying to introduce them to the readers so that they're accessible, because otherwise they're just play figures in my mind.
1: Rachel McMillan is the author of the Harry Ford and Watts Mysteries, the three-quarter time series of contemporary romances set in opulent Vienna, and the Van Buren and DeLuca Mysteries praised for bringing an authentic 1930s Boston world to life while normalizing the fictional conversation surrounding mental illness. She is also the author of Dream, Plan, and Go, A Romantic's Guide to Independent Travel, and A Very Merry Holiday Movie Guide, which explores her love of made-for-TV Christmas movies. Her historical romances include the London Restoration and her upcoming The Mozart Code, which takes readers deep into the atmospheric look of post-war London, Vienna, and Prague. Well, Rachel, I love your dedication to historical detail and accuracy. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you and how you manage to build your stories around the historical facts?
0: Well, I think it's important to me because, A, I love to read historical fiction, and my favorite historical fiction experiences inspire me to read more about the time period. Um, I am an enthusiast of history. I don't have any degree, and because I write in different time periods historically, I can't, of course, get a degree in every one of them. So I think it's important for me to act as an usher into the past. To give people enough of an idea of some of the interesting facets of history that hopefully, like me, they'll be inspired to read more about it. I think that holding a reader's hand into the past can offer a really wonderful, immersive look at history from a humane side and an accessible side. So it's not a textbook. Um, it's not an overwhelming tome, but hopefully it inspires them to go and read a bit more about the times and peoples and uh, places that I write about. So that's that's why I like it so much.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I just love the, the power of stories that they can inspire us and they can also teach us and, and move us to to learn more about the past. And I, th- I think that's what you do in your books. Um, the London Restoration features an architectural historian. Yes. Uh, and you, as you mentioned, you know, you can't get a degree in all these things. I don't think you're an architect. No. <laughs> um, so tell me about that process of, of learning about ar- architecture and how you were able to pass your character off as such an authority on it.
0: Well, that uh, part of London Restoration took a lot. I don't know about you, Colin, but I always end up researching and writing more than ends up in the final product of the book, and so I don't know if readers realize this, but I tend to do a ton of research that I can't fit in, or else we'd have a 600-page book just about Christopher Wren, which (laughs) no one hired me to write. So with that, uh, the Christopher Wren churches, especially in his buildings in London, were really integral to Diana, my heroine. So I had to learn enough so that when I got into her stream of consciousness and when I lost myself in the writing of the character, I could do so trying to see the world through her eyes so it was probably the most intensive research that i did for london restoration um i of course did a 10-day trip to london specifically to do two things one was to spend some time at bletchley park and then the other was to spend time in churches so i roamed around and i just looked at the churches and learned as much as i could on site Then I came back and Toronto has a wonderful reference library. And on the eighth floor, they have all of these wonderful facsimiles of Christopher Wren's blueprints and a ton of architectural history books. And so I would go and lose myself for hours just learning terms and looking at what he would have seen in his plans. And with that, I hoped to be able to create some of the excitement and passion that Diana has for architectural history while not knowing a lot myself, other than I've always really been passionate about buildings from uh, just a tourist perspective. I always find myself lured to churches and old buildings here in Toronto, like anywhere. um, I'm always trying to look up and see the way that the past marries the present. And so that, uh, that passion that Diana has for finding churches, within her own city uh, was something that definitely mimics my own. So that was probably the most intensive part of the research for London restoration, but also really rewarding. Cause I'm really into Christopher Wren now.
1: Wow. Yeah, that, that sounds like quite a trip. You had 10 day <laughs> trip to London. And it just sounds like so much fun.
0: It was. <laughs> yeah.
1: Can you tell me a little bit more about what it meant uh, to, well, I guess tell us a little bit about what happened during World War II and and what followed as far as what was destroyed and what was revealed and the controversy between what should be saved and, and restored and what shouldn't be.
0: Yeah, well, I think that one of the things that we fail to discuss when we're talking about any type of war or history is that it's not only the casualties of human life, which of course are the most devastating, but it's the casualties of history that these, churches that Wren, as an example, had been commissioned to build after the Great Fire of London in 1666, found themselves destroyed again by a different fire, the fire bombs. So one of the things that I found interesting about researching London restoration, while was that even though the Blitz was still going on, even in the early 40s when war was still being fought, many historians within London and many architects within London were thinking of the time beyond the war how they were going to rebuild. And so I would say that one of the greatest changes that happened was the institution of the grading system for buildings in Britain. So if you go to Britain now, you'll see things listed as a grade A historical building, a grade B, you know, they put numerical um, categories to them as well. And that was just distinguishing things that needed to be Preserved, So I think that that was a war in which they were really thinking our city could be ruined forever. And what are we going to do to make sure to preserve it? And one of the things that I really loved that they came up with was going back to Wren's blueprints in the rebuilding, instead of just changing everything to a more modern facade or design, they went back and they tried to recreate the buildings as they would have been in Ren's time and there was a lot of discussion about leaving some of the churches as a memorial um you know you go and there are churches in London that you'll see shells of that uh have gardens overgrown in them because they've no one rebuilt them for whatever reason some of it was cost some of it was where are we going to put our resources But it was very important for a lot of people to try and rebuild the structures that were desecrated. And it took into the 60s and 70s in some cases for everything to be rebuilt. So I think that the major change in World War II was that people were starting to realize that we really need to have a great plan for rebuilding our city because it might be devastated and how can we protect it after so we're not losing our history altogether.
1: Yeah, that's something that I don't really think about studying the war, studying history, is kind of the aftermath and some of those hard decisions. And it it, I, it makes me curious about the, the, the recent fire. I guess it was a few years ago now at uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. Yes. Where, where did you fall on, on that side of the debate about whether it should be restored or not?
0: Uh, it It was really hard, and it's really hard because I remember a lot of the discussions And it... It's kind of ironic. Um, I signed the contract for London restoration with HarperCollins the week that Notre Dame burned. And of course, as a lover of history and churches, I had been to Notre Dame the previous summer just as a tourist, not really researching. And of course, I think that that is just a magnificent building. And Hugo, Victor Hugo, wrote Hunchback of Notre Dame partly to save it, because it's not just 20th century and 21st century where we're thinking about development development and urban rebuilding, even then, many people in Paris wanted to destroy it. So he wrote a book to try and inspire passion to save Notre Dame. That was a bit of a tangent. Um, But one of the things that was hard, and it is hard in anything that we deal with, is that some people were saying it will take millions and millions of dollars or euro, as it were, to be able to rebuild this, and yet there's so much suffering and war in the world. What should we do in this case? And so one of the things, and I don't know if I've, I've got everything in scope right now, but one of the things I love is that they really are trying to use trees from chateaus in rural France that they're really trying to do the best they can within a modern framework to try and get the cathedral to what it was before. Luckily, the damage was not as bad as it could have been. I mean, it is still standing and there's still so many wonderful things about it that if we see it after it's finished, we're going to recognize things that Victor Hugo would have seen, for example, and people 500 years ago would have seen. But I think that the blending of recognizing that we have modern limitations uh, as well as how can we honor the past is probably what's going to be the best kind of balance when it comes to building Notre Dame but obviously I follow that with great interest because I love old churches.
1: Yeah well it's 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 very interesting and it's definitely great that we can at least take a step back and think about it critically and think about how it affects everyone and and um you know rather than just coming to a hasty decision and I don't want to spend too much time here on, on architecture but I do <laughs> want to uh I do want to mention the first line of London restoration because I just thought it, it, it as a writer you really hit the spot with it so I'll just read it here um you write, while some adjusted to the air raid sirens and others to the lost light of blackouts, Diana Somerville never recovered from the absence of church bells. And I I really think that's such a wonderful way to put the reader in the mind of the character and just immediately to to know who this person is. Um, How did you come up with that? Was it difficult? Was it just sheer inspiration? Uh, What was that like to come up with that line?
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, I think for me, it was trying to imagine when you, I mean, as a writer, you know, this when you're trying, I I am seeing these characters so deeply, that in my mind, they're fully formed. So then the next part of the process is trying to introduce them to the readers so that they're accessible, because otherwise, they're just play figures in my mind. And I thought, how can I get the reader? to tap into what Diana's main passion and motive is. And so I thought of things beyond what most people would think about the war. Of course, you're uh, deprived of light because there there was blackouts. Um, you're deprived of, ironically, given the year that we've had, a lot of your social connections, your visits with your family and friends. You're deprived of beautiful buildings that have been bombed in the Uh, The sense of safety. But for Diana, I thought about the sounds that she would miss. And I think that all of the things that we take for granted as just normalcy throughout our day. um, I think it was in uh, Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, there's a character who notices the absence of children playing, that the streets are cleared, there's no kids laughing in schoolyards. And I thought, that is really poignant because we don't always think about that. So it came from me trying to find a way to introduce Diana to the reader and also show a bit of her loss and humanity and not this great big, I didn't want to start with, oh, and she lost her love, Brent, who was far away. I thought church bells were a way to make her accessible to the reader. And of course, being such a passionate church architectural historian, that is something that would be on her mind and in her psyche.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's great. And I, I love what you mentioned about the, the u- unique perspective of, you know, as you said, not noticing that there are no children around. Um and that reminds me of of something I read where you talk about relationships taking precedence over history. So, you know, we've talked about the importance of history and the some of the research you've done, but your your novels obviously are, are rooted in relationships. Um, So tell me how, why that's important and and how you develop those throughout your stories.
0: I think for London Restoration, I I am a huge historical fiction reader, as I mentioned, and I really do like historical stories that have a romance element, because I find that's a really universally human experience. So it's an easy way to get invested in characters because we know what that loss feels like, even if we have not lived in a time period. So with the romance in London restoration, I wanted to achieve two things. Uh, One, we often have the stories end with the characters getting married. I mean, Shakespeare, right? Everything ends in the death or a marriage. Um, But two, I wanted to start the story where the film credits would usually roll. And I do something quite uh, similar in The Mozart Code, which comes out uh, in January. And it's, it's not a sequel to London Restoration, but it's a companion piece. And you meet the two characters who are the focus of that love story in London Restoration. And again, I wanted to have them established. So you're meeting them through the lens of war instead of the war forming their relationship they have a relationship before as my characters in London Restoration do but how does war allow people to grow together even as they're learning how to be independent apart and this was especially true for women who for the first time in you know in many of their life lifetimes had different expectations outside of being a homemaker or a wife and that is really important to me and that was a key to finding the heart of brent and diana's relationship and i thought if i can do it so it's not a traditional romance then perhaps it will give me a really interesting perspective into how the war shaped humanity beyond the loss of life beyond the um, conflict beyond the poverty and the rations how did it shape who people were after all of the bombs had fallen and all of the guns had been fired. So that was really important to me.
1: I also read, uh, maybe it was in one of your interviews that you've already done, uh, about how you manage to create a metaphor between your plot and between the relationship, between the development of both. Is that something that you try to do and that comes naturally? Does it take multiple revisions? Does it something that, that just appears? How, how does that work for you?
0: I think that with London Restoration as soon as I had I had two ideas. I I really wanted to look at the churches and the rebuilding of the churches and then I wanted to have a love story and I couldn't imagine how those two things could fit better <laughs> than having the restoration of a marriage against the restoration of these bombed churches. And I thought that was a really wonderful look at Life. Um, how the war not only put broken, not only inspired people to put broken things and buildings back together, but also marriages and relationships. And so that worked out really well. Um, it doesn't always happen in books. In Mozart Code, which has been that's my uh, every <laughs> so many authors I know we have that pandemic book. That is a book that has a sense of isolation to it because the characters are drawn in different parts of the war. The war in that story is very much centered just before the Iron Curtain falls. So it's a different experience. And so I came up with kind of a different metaphor and theme for it. So, and that took several revisions to get to. I think it changes book by book. But once I had the idea of the churches, I thought, what a wonderful parallel to have these two people rebuilding as their city rebuilds, because the the city itself is such a huge starring role in both Brent and Diana's life in that book.
1: Definitely. And, and I think it's just such a wonderful way to to use fiction to draw out the the emotional truths of everything that goes on within our history, within war and every, you know every a pandemic, anything really.
0: Yeah, and you know I I just I hope people find even though our experience in the past year has been different, we can keep finding parallels throughout history, and I think that's why historical fiction remains such a popular genre especially historical fiction set in World War II. We like to draw strength from people who lived through time periods that were tumultuous and hopefully find something to take away from that.
1: Um, I want to talk about something I read in your historical note to the London Restoration. I really appreciate your sincerity, um, and I'm just going to read a line from that. You say, as a Canadian author writing the history of a foreign city I love, I recognize that my creation of this novel was conceived with historical liberties, often to, to the advantage of the world I wanted to create, while appropriating a history I cannot personally speak to. That sounds like a very um, integral, deep responsibility. Can you talk about that responsibility a little bit?
0: Well, I one of the things that I think readers are noticing, and this will be in my historical fiction going forward because it was well-received, is my historical notes are going to be at the beginning of the books. And usually they're at the end. Um, In many books, the author's note is after the story is finished. And I think that it's because I've felt that responsibility to let readers know that they are not getting a pitch perfect um, reflection of history, rather an entertainment experience of history that hopefully acts as a gateway. And... It was also important because right now in any discourse about fiction, whether historical or not, there's a lot of discussion about um, appropriating experiences and voices. And so you do the best you can to think as a writer, Do is it valid that I'm telling this viewpoint? Um, is it right for me to tell this viewpoint? Am I the best person to tell this viewpoint? And with Brent and Diana and British history and London, I thought that even though I am a Canadian, um, with our close ties and all of the research I had done and my grandfather having fought as a stretcher bearer in the war, that I felt uh, compelled and validated to do that. Would I feel right doing that for every historical period in perspective? Probably not but i wanted the readers to know that a lot of careful consideration had gone into that because the story is not my own.
1: Yeah, that's it's, it's uh, wonderful to hear you express that that you're you're thinking about those things. I think in years past it just kind of went over our our heads that we didn't even consider the appropriation part of it and and the responsibility responsibility we have as writers because of because of the power of stories and and the way they can kind of work their way into popular society, so I applaud you for doing that.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh,
1: you you said uh, well, you were talking about the Mozart Code being your pandemic book, but I, I can't help but notice that I think you published three books in 2020.
0: (laughs) It's crazy. 2020 was supposed to be my big publishing year. So London Restoration came out, but I also had, um, I released a little Christmas novella. And then I had two nonfiction books come out. Ironically, um, my book about independent solo travel, Dream Plan Go released on May the 6th, 2020, when nobody was going anywhere. Um, And then I had released a nonfiction book with another publisher, um, uh, just about my love for made for TV Christmas movies, Hallmark movies. Um, So I, I, you know, every writer's dream is to have lots of books come out. um, But I don't know if every writer anticipates doing launches via zoom alone in their apartment during a global pandemic so it was uh kind of ironic and kind of funny uh but i i am very happy that that year is over and we're slowly but surely getting back to life
1: yeah well c- congratulations on on all that work <laughs> um and hopefully Uh, you managed to get something out of it and hopefully maybe they get some new life here, as you say, as we start to get back to normal. But, uh, tell me how, you know, how, how do you manage to be so productive? Um, what is your writing process like mornings, evenings? Um, how often are you writing? How often are you reading? How often are you researching that? Those sorts of things.
0: Uh I've always I'm kind of fortunate in that I, I've always as a lot of writers want, I want as much time in my career spent writing as possible. And I think as a you know, any writers listening know it's very difficult to have writing as a career, which is why I publish in different genres to help. Um but I also do work as a literary agent, so I represent about ten clients. So I find that my writing time has to work around some of my other obligations. Um, I do tend not to work well in the morning. So I often do administrative and marketing stuff and that kind of thing. Uh, It also depends on what stage of the book we're on. Um, Right now with Mozart code, I'm in revisions. So it just depends on when I'm getting certain chapters back from my editor. I kind of dive into it. Um, my process is a lot of research. The first thing I do is research. Um, and then 2020 put a damper on this, but, um, Mozart Cove was the last time I was able to do this. I went to Vienna and Prague just before Christmas in 2019. And so I do the research and then I like to do as much on location writing as I can. And for me, that means going throughout a city and taking jot notes in my notebooks and taking lots of pictures on my iPhone. So that hopefully when I get into writing the bulk of the story, I have all of those descriptors. I have that world in my head. and my dearest hope is that when readers open the pages of my books then they feel like they're there. So after I have all of that pre-work done then I can kind of get into the plot and story. I also, and as a writer you might find this fascinating and or scary, um, I don't always write chronologically. If a scene comes to me or an idea I write it out And then later, it's sewing up all the different patches of the quilt. And luckily, I have very good editors who work with me because (laughs) there can be fragments and little uh, pulled threads in those patches as the book goes through its revisions.
1: Well, that that reminds me, I mean, you mentioning the editors you work with, that reminds me of something, another thing I noticed in the London Restoration, and that is your acknowledgments. It was the longest acknowledgments. (laughs) I have ever seen. So for a novice writer out there, tell us a little bit about all the work that goes into these novels and all the people that help make it happen.
0: Oh, I think that writers should know that 70% of writing is going to be editorial trust. So when you sign with a publisher, you are going to be working, hopefully, with one acquiring editor, who goes through your book and kind of does all of the big picture stuff my editor's name is kim and she's amazing and then after that i have a line editor uh julie and she goes through and ties everything up together and i think that my acknowledgments were so long and that is because if i had my way there's probably not enough room on the cover but i'd put <laughs> every it's not just rachel mcmillan's London Restoration. It is a team effort, especially from an editorial team. Every copy editor, every line editor, every developmental editor works on these books. And I don't know how many readers realize that the story that starts out as being submitted on manuscript due date day is so different without the work of a team. So I think that it's really important that people recognize that It's not just my book. I couldn't do this without an editorial team. They see things and the potential of things that I couldn't. And they also take the story out of my head where it lives and make it reader facing. So hopefully readers can understand it a little better. So my acknowledgments are long, but that's because I just have a lot of help.
1: (laughs) Yeah well it it is interesting when you when you're in into a project for so long how you kind of become blinded to certain elements of it and and it's and you think you're done, you think you're done, and it's just people you know that that come along to help can reveal things that you just just were unable to see
0: and I think that that is you know editors have a gift that a lot of writers do not um I can't edit myself to the degree that I need to. And a lot of that comes from editors seeing the potential of a book that I cannot and just asking the most perfect questions. And I think that that's really wonderful. And I think it made London Restoration the story that it is. And so I'm very appreciative of editors.
1: (laughs) And I'm sure it's something that you are now helping your clients do as as an agent.
0: Yes. And I am very bad with the spelling, grammar, copy editing, uh, copy editing stuff. Uh, but definitely with the I, I as a reader, like a voracious reader, you get to a point where you see things. But I just think with as a writer, I'm so close to the story that I just do not have the perspective needed for my own work. It's different when it's other people's, but mm-hmm. for my own work, I'm just way too close to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to leave without giving you a chance to talk about the Mozart Code. I believe it comes out in January 2022. Is that right?
0: Yes. So it's had, it had a bit of a uh, pub change date. Um, but yes, it is now coming out January the 18th, 2022. Wow, we're in 2022 already. Um, and it introduces readers if you've read London Restoration, you'll have met these guys before, but if not, um, the hero is Simon Barr, and he currently works for MI5, but he is, I, I kind of tell his story. Um, He's Diana from London Restoration. He's kind of her contact handler in London, but it's his work at trying to suss out um, a communist traitor. Who is going to be influential in making sure that the Iron Curtain falls in Prague and Vienna. And he and his associate Sophie, who was Diana's friend at Bletchley Park, uh, end up finding that a lot of the mystery that they're trying to solve is linked to the death mask of Mozart. And That was a cool thing I learned ages ago, and I've always wanted to put this in a book, that Mozart's death mask, or what is perceived to be his death mask, it's never been actually uh, verified, was found in a Viennese pawn shop in 1947. And I thought, wow, that's a really cool thing to turn up after the war. So it's a Cold War set with flashbacks to the war, just like London Restoration did. But it's these two people trying to navigate a relationship through a world that's falling apart and a war that's very different than World War II, but just as dangerous. The ideology of the rise of communism, um, the rebuilding of the cities, not only with buildings, but Vienna was divided into the power of the four Allied forces, so just trying to find a way to rebuild Europe politically, as well as um, restoring the bombed towns and cities, it's just been a very fascinating look that we don't see a lot of, actually, in World War II fiction, I find, so it's been fun.
1: Yeah, it sounds fun, it sounds um, very interesting and, and a different perspective, I guess, for me as an American, I don't consider those along that, that iron curtain and, and uh, what that might have been like. And of course, the, the way you, you're able to tie it in with the London restoration and bring those, give those characters new life. I think that's that's great. And I will look forward to that.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Well, I've been talking with Rachel McMillan, the author of numerous books and novels, including The London Restoration and the forthcoming The Mozart Code. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: I've been talking with Rachel McMillan, the author of numerous books and novels, including *The London Restoration* and the forthcoming, the um, now I forgot the name. And the oh, the Mozart yeah. Code. Oh, <laughs> I can make a quick. Actually, I'll I'll just redo that. I I can edit that part out. So I'll redo the Perfect. kind of closing here.